hello, all you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> Just kidding. This is not Tiger King. This is Science and Podcast. Hi, everyone. Um, it's me again, Madison Dix, and there's another person. Joe Exotic. No. Jared, Jared Adelman. Oh. Don't let him fool you. Yeah, I lied. I'm a fibber. We're feeling a little silly today, but as per usual, we're here to talk about science, um, specifically to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. That's what we do. That's what we like doing. Yeah. So, uh, we have an article for you today. It's about the brain, which is pretty cool. I'm doing the article this week, but we will also jump into some fun facts that have nothing to do with the brain. Um, we'll break down some jargon for you so that you understand what we're talking about when we're talking about brain science. Um, and then we'll walk you through the article, like a little walk in the park. Um, if the walk in the park has tons of rabbit holes and jokes and like weird non sequitur, uh, tangents. I would hope those rabbit holes because there might be cool stuff in there. In a park. Exactly. In general. It'd be, it would be like walking in a park with us. Yeah, you know. We, you know, we'd show you all the spiders. I'd put on every rabbit hole. Uh, I'd tell you the history of some weird bench. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that would be your purview. I'd be looking for the holes. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's us. That's what we're going to do. And you're here. Uh, and please stay with us. Give us a try. And if you like it, rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, all right. right. So, you got any fun facts for us? I got another dog fun fact. Dog fun fact! Mm-hmm. Did you know uh, that b essentially besides like the general notion of like positive reinforcement, um, any like dog training program, uh, no matter what they might try to tell you, isn't actually like scientifically verified in the research sense. Ha. So um, it's really, really, really tough to do that because you have to get uh, a lot of members of the exact same breed. You have to raise uh, a certain number of them in an exactly con exactly the same conditions, yeah. which is really hard to do outside of a lab. Yeah. And you also have to, you may, you may have to make everything the same except for that specific tr training program, which is just not really feasible. No, um, it's not. So no true, <laughs> really no training program has actually gone, gone through that. Um, also note to the fact that dogs are just like insanely behaviorally variable animals that often pick up on stuff and notice stuff that we just don't know. Like, They're very individual. Yeah, yeah, maybe the training worked because you're finally paying attention more to, to your dog and it mm -hmm. likes that and that's why the training worked. Maybe um, uh, uh, the big old scary dog at the end of the street moved away and now that's helping the dog. Um, yeah. So, you know, if a training works, fantastic. Um, if they try to tell you that it's a science training, say no. Jared said no. Jared said it's not science. Not science. Busted. Busted. But dog training programs are still really good. Yeah, absolutely. Important. They help so many people, especially people with um, like rescue dogs, mm -hmm. who they just have no idea what to do because the dog has crazy anxiety but can't tell the person about it. Yeah. Dog trainers are good for helping with that kind of stuff. Exactly. But, there is, speaking as someone who's observed and done a lot of training, there is a double-edged sword to that, which is that some people sort of don't really get that they have to follow up themselves on the training and stuff. It so, has to be consistent. Yeah, you got to be prepared to, do, to put in the work. Yes. Otherwise, everything the trainer tells you is basically bunk um also, but yeah correct me if i'm wrong there shouldn't be any dog training programs that rely on corporal punishment right no that doesn't work thank you well it works but really the dog does not become a happy dog yeah yeah don't hurt them okay don't hurt them good fun fact mm -hmm. thank you yeah thank you what's your fun fact madison my fun fact oh it just flew out of my brain it's back okay great <laughs> um my fun fact i learned that percentages are reversible uh, explain. So, so you want to do 8% of 25. Can you tell me quickly what that is? Exactly. Four point something. How about 25% of 8? Two. 8% of 25 is also two. Hmm? Yeah, they're reversible. You can do it either way. No way, really? Yeah. 
Wow. Isn't that maddening? That's crazy. I know. I, hmm. Now I, I don't know why. Now I suck at math. So I don't know you how could it works. be insane and I would just still believe you. But like, that's crazy. No, it's true. I tested it. I found so there's a Instagram account that I follow that Science the Podcast follows. Mm. Um called Science Fun. <laughs> or maybe it was memes on science. We follow both. But anyway, they posted that and I was like, this is a prank. Then I tried it. And then I try to watch a bunch of other ones, and it checks out every time. And my brain is like, does like flip flop cartwheels, like trying to figure out why that works. And I have no idea. Math, man. Math. Oh, also, we didn't uh, make math. We discovered it. I mean, yeah, it's a language of it's 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 language it's, of the universe. It, yeah, everything it, works in math. Yeah, it, math is just a language that we use to describe relationships between things. Yeah, like Newton didn't discover calcul. Was that Newton? Newton and calculus? I don't know. Didn't he make calculus? I'm not a math person. I don't yeah. know. Pythagoras would know. He made a theorem. He did make the theorem. Loved triangles, that guy. Yeah. Speaking of love triangles. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, not speaking of them at all, but yeah, we should. <laughs> well, to be fair, you didn't tell me what the paper's about. <laughs> exactly. So, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about stepwise synaptic plasticity events drive early phase of memory consolidation. Ooh. Yeah. Talking neuroplasticity, we're talking brain science. Um, this paper has a lot of authors. There's twelve uh, of them, so I'm not gonna list all of them, but we will put them in the Instagram post. Gotcha, gotcha. But, yeah, I'm you not gonna, gonna list twelve people. You're gonna list some of those people? No, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make anyone feel bad. We're treating you all equally, guys. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was actually published in Science. Volume 374, issue 6,569. Damn. Um, and it was published November 11th, 2021. Isn't that when my paper was published? Yours was the 17th. Oh. But yeah. Close. November 2021, baby. Mm-hmm. Cool date. Cool month. <laughs> cool date. Cool month for science. Also, I will post the DOI in the show notes, but this article is behind a paywall. Ugh. Yeah. Um, what I will tell you is the study was done at Kyoto University in Kyoto, Japan. And um, a little tidbit about Kyoto University, there are 13 Nobel Prize laureates who went there. Wow. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's, it's a school that, it's a name that comes up a lot when talking about uh, neuroscience. It seems so. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to dive into neuroplasticity, memory, some light mind control. Um, but before we do that, we got to do some Dragon Corner. Okay. Okay. All right. Stroll on over. So my dragon corner today is kind of big. It's a lot of things. Because there's a lot we need to understand about how the brain works before we get into the minutiae. I think of... I've come to expect a large dragon corner from Madison. Yeah. I so like, yeah, it's I okay. like to pull out and to define. Um, I love jargon in some <laughs> cases, um, but yes. All right. So. I think I just like Latin words. They yeah, are, that's the heart of it. They have a good mouthfeel. Latin words. <laughs> they do have a good mouthfeel. Yeah. Um, they're... Aromatic on the nose? No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Oaky aftertones. <laughs> Oaky afterbirth. Um, <laughs> this is a white? Yes, so good. All right, number one in the jargon corner. Jared, what are neurons? Oh, uh, a neuron is basically uh, the brain reduced to a single component. It's those neural cells uh, that are used to transfer not only electrical impulses, but sometimes uh, hormones uh, throughout the brain. Yeah, it's how the brain do. Mm -hmm. is neurons. They're sometimes also <laughs> called neurons or nerve cells. They are the fundamental units of the brain and our nervous system. They receive sensory input from the external world, sight, sound, smells, all that good stuff. They send motor commands to our muscles, like grab that, 
Um, and they also transform and relay electrical signals at every step in between doing those things. So whenever you see, like, in a show, they zoom into the brain and it's like, zip, zip, zip. And they're those little, like, starfish-looking things. Mm -hmm. Those are neurons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they have a myelin sheath, I remember, from AP Psychology. They sure do. <laughs> yep. Well, anyway, um, neurons are you. Your neurons define who you are as a person. Um, however, like... If you change a couple of them, it's not going to change you that much because there are roughly 100 billion neurons in each of our bodies. I think one of the things, like one of the very small things that's unique to humans as well is like the density of our gray matter and the like the density of the neurons we have packed in, isn't it? Yep. Yep. It's not how big our brain is. It's how busy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By comparison, the smooth brain of the koala uh, lacks folds, uh, which might explain why if you give them uh, eucalyptus on a plate, they, they won't eat it. <laughs> They're also high all the time. Oh, they're super high all the but time. But I don't hold that against them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> neurons, <laughs> neurons are what the brain, what make the brain go do. Um, and the more folds there are in the brain, the more complex it is, the more neuronal connections there are, the more the brain can do. Um, another thing I learned, um, well, I mean, I kind of learned it before this, but something I find really interesting is when we learn about the brain in like a high school way, it's often broken down into this part does this and this part does this. Yeah, like the, I specifically remember Broca's and Wernicke's areas, which are like speech processing and speech doing. Yeah, um, those areas are associated with language, um, but it's a lot more fluid and plastic than that. Mm -hmm. By plastic, I don't mean like polyurethane. <laughs> oh, you mean like Phineas Gage getting a spike drove him through his exactly. head and still being able to function as a human being. Adaptable, changeable, malleable. Yeah. So even though there are certain areas of the brain that are correlated with certain functions, almost any part of the brain can perform any function. Mm -hmm. And what our brain does is much more defined by what's called the connectome. So, which is the intricate configurations that basically how the neurons and neuronal circuits go through our brain if you ever hear about neural pathways, mm -hmm. um, like when you think, like when you get a smell and then it reminds you of a place, that's a circuit, that's neurons firing in a certain pattern in the brain. And that is really what defines what's going on in there more than any one area. Yeah, I kind of think of it in the same way as like how we sort of interpret the genome now. Like certain mm -hmm. genes can be connected to other ones in ways that we just don't understand, but they yep. just get pulled along for, for the ride and just have these usually unintended consequences that we just sort of have to like figure out as it happens. Yeah, yeah. So like modern neuroscience is less focused on this part of the brain does this and, you know, figuring that out. And it's more focused on individuals and following these different critical circuits to understand how groups of different brain areas work together and that how that determines different human behaviors. Does age have any play in this? Like, I, I would imagine that it's a lot easier for a young brain to rewire and reconnect itself than an older The one. brain is much more plastic before the age of 26. It's gotcha. at its most plastic when you're a baby. <laughs> Just learning all of the stuff. But... Oh, we should probably define plastic, because that's something I feel means a very different thing in, like, popular culture. Yeah, Like, plastic... Right. The definitions of plastic and static drive me crazy, because they're the reverse of what you might expect. At least growing up is, like, how I did. Yeah. Um, so plastic is... It's not just like a hard substance you can't rework. It's the exact opposite. It's 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 something that you can mold for a vast, vast, uh, yes. a lot of purposes. Yeah. Plastic means like moldable, adaptable, changeable, mm -hmm. changing plastic. Yeah. Now, yeah. When, when I think of static, I think of like erratic, just like electricity activity moving this way and that way and that way and that way. But in science speak, static is like still unmoving. Yep. Doesn't do shit. Fixed. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, the brain is very plastic. It's basically always creating and changing itself. And if you want to learn more about neuroplasticity, which is one of my favorite scientific topics... Don't do luminosity. Don't. 
Read the book. (laughs) (laughs) The Brain That Changes Itself. It's so good. So good. Okay. So, yes, those are neurons. (laughs) Uh, What's a synapse? Uh, The synapses are the spaces between the neurons. They're sort of like the gaps. Exactly. So the synapse is less of like a a thing and more of a something that happens. Mm -hmm. So the synapses are the chemical communications between neurons and other cells through the use of neurotransmitters. What are neurotransmitters? Those are the hormones that the neurons produce. Yeah, sometimes they're hormones. They can be lots of different things. Yeah, so like here are some examples of oh elements can be neurotransmitters. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. sodium and potassium. Right, yeah. right. Um, so some of the most common ones used in the brain: um, acetylcholine, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, epinephrine. These are all neurotransmitters. Norepinephrine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't know about that one. Uh, but yeah, that's the just chemical. the opposite of epinephrine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So. Um, neurotransmitters, they're chemical messengers in the body. So a lot of them are hormones. Um, most of them are small amine molecules, amino acids, and neuropeptides. And their job is to transmit signals from nerve cells to target cells, which might be muscles, glands, other nerves. They control everything. Yeah. Yeah. Make it more complex because you can't solve everything by Mm -hmm. just talking with the electricity. Yeah. And if you're depleted in certain neurotransmitters, things can get wonky. For example, I am depleted in dopamine. (laughs) (laughs) Which What's... means I have the ADHD. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say I'm de- you, you were depressed. And I was like, oh, no, same. No, <laughs> I'm also depleted in the serotonin. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, especially right now because it's December. Woo! <laughs> oh, my goddamn bugs are gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Back on topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the brain. All right, so we've talked a bit about plasticity and we've talked about synapses now. So what do you think synaptic plasticity is? That would be the ability to change those synapses for different purposes. Yes, exactly. Oh, good, because so, that was a guess. Yeah, it's the ability of synapses, of these neural pathways, to strengthen or weaken over time in response to increases or decreases in their activity. So, for example, if you're, like, always walking the same way to work, um, and, like, you have a very specific routine where on your walk to work you get ready for the day, that's a really strong pathway that's going to form in your brain. But if you get a new job with a new commute, that's going to go away and you're going to form a new pathway with your new work and your new routine. That's fun to me because I have to go through Boston in the morning, which means mm-hmm. that every single commute is, is is different because I have to use my Google Maps to help me uh, predict where traffic's going to be the worst and then usually fail to predict that and get stuck in it. But sometimes I can get through it. Jared's synapses, very plastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always have to be a walking path, but I like the imagery of that because it's a pathway in the brain and then you're walking on a path. Mm-hmm. It's a good connection. Like that. Yeah. Um, you can also change synaptic pathways on purpose through cognitive behavioral therapy. So my trauma babes out there, get into it. Um, my trauma babes out there, who am I? Well, you know who you are. Okay, well, the next thing in the jargon corner is LTP. Any idea what that stands for? No, spell it out for me, please. <laughs> Long-term potentiation. Oh, so I was trying to remember a certain hormone in the body because I had to do a little thing about the endocrine system a while ago. So I was completely different. Also, I forgot the words. Can you say them again? LTP, long-term potentiation. Long-term potentiation. I've never heard the word potentiation, but it happens over a long term. Yes. So LTP shows up in a lot of neuroscience articles and it's sort of used as a noun. And so if you don't know that it's an acronym that means what I'm about to tell you it means, it gets confusing. Mm -hmm. You might think it's a hormone. But what it is, is a process by which synaptic connections between the neurons become stronger with frequent activation. So it's Hmm. the way they think that long-term potentiation 
is how the brain changes in response to experience. So it's like the strengthening of the, of, of the brain muscles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they think it's probably a mechanism that underlines learning and memory is this long-term potentiation. So that's going to be important <clears throat> later. Yeah. So it's how a memory is formed. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Is long-term potentiation. Got how it. it goes from an experience to a memory or a part of your personality. Hmm. Yeah. Next in this long-ass jargon corner, the hippocampus. Who is she? Oh, that's the uh, part of the brain that always reminds me of a hippopotamus, uh, but that has really nothing to do with def the definition, which is... It does look a little bit like a hippopotamus. They're both, so. like, sort of bean-shaped. Yeah, they both live mostly underwater and can run at speeds of 30 kilometers an hour. No. No. Well, Only one of them can do that. Right, okay. Uh, the hippocampus is an area of the brain that has been strongly connected to the storage of memory. That's correct! Um, if you want to know where it is, it's in your temporal lobe, which is the part that's like a headband from ear to ear, right in the middle section. Bloop! Yes, and it's deep in there, but sort of positioned like right above your ear on one side. For mm. most people, it's on, I think, the right side, but some left-handed people, it's on the left side. Cool. I know, isn't that so cool? So it might be over here for me. Yeah. Yeah. Might be. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna figure it out. But. She's important. The hippocampus is our girl. Um, so it's, it's a really important like communication center. It's connected to your limbic system, um, which is the more quote unquote. Explain that uh, to me as if I forgot yeah. what it was. So the limbic system <laughs> is like the quote unquote like more primitive part of the brain. Um, it's like fight flight. Oh, so like the more like instinctual response. Exactly. Okay. Yeah is the limbic system. Um, so the limbic system is like really good at responding to things really quickly, but terrible at knowing what's going on. <laughs> like, it's reactive. The limbic system, he's just in the dark panicking. It's like, <laughs> was that a gunshot? No, it was a balloon. <laughs> like, <laughs> poor thing. Um, but really important, saves us with there is a gunshot. Mm -hmm. um, so it's connected to the limbic system and it communicates with the limbic system and the amygdala, which I only remember to spell because I always say it, Amy G. Dalla. Mm. That has a lot to do with the emotions of fear and rage. Yes, it does. Um, so I don't know why I went right to rage when usually it's anger, but well, I've been yeah. playing a lot of God of War, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the amygdala you probably know about if you have any sort of mental. If you've ever had treatment for anything mental, <laughs> you are familiar with your amygdala because she takes her cues from the limbic system and then turns it into emotions: um, anger, panic. Uh, happiness sometimes hopefully yeah <clears throat> but she's not. important um and then also the cortex which is where all the thinking and logic and everything goes along so like the hippocampus is right between all of these things it's the one in between them like guys guys come on get it together we got this yeah um it helps the limbic system communicate with the the rest of your brain the, the newer part which is often described as like the more developed part the more sophisticated but because it's newer i'd say it's in beta <laughs> Yeah. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> it's, there's, there's some bugs to work out, let me tell you. Um, yeah, but it's like kind of a bridge between like the hunger, fear, sex part of our brain and the thoughts, plans, memories part of our brain. And it's very fragile and very important. Also, I found a little story about the hippocampus that I think is delightful and um, will help you understand what it does because it's... This is how we figured out what it does, basically. They cool. didn't know. They were like, it's a little bean. I don't know. <laughs> um, but then, <laughs> in 1953, oh, I would not want to go to any doctor in 1953. God, no. Oh, boy. But in 1953, there was a patient. His name was Henry Molaison. Molaison? I don't know. And they, the doctors removed his hippocampus, surgically, 
um, during an op- operation experimentally to try to treat his epilepsy, which is a seizure disorder, hmm. which they know the hippocampus was involved in that. But that's all they really knew about it. Did they cut out his hippocampus? And took it out, yeah. Oh, jeez. So they took out his hippocampus, and his epilepsy was cured, and they were like, that's a success. And he lived for 55 healthy years after that. Wow. Um, pretty great. However, <laughs> after the surgery, he was only able to form episodic memories that lasted a matter of minutes, and he was completely unable to permanently store new information. Oh, jeez. So as a result... So was he stuck in the time before he got... Uh... Dehippocampus. Yeah, he had really great long-term memory of everything that happened before the surgery. Great memory of it, but forever after the surgery, um, he had no memory of ever doing anything. So it, it's really interesting because like he was able to learn new skills, new motor tasks, and stuff like that, like how to sew. But he didn't remember learning how. <laughs> so, like motor tasks, he could learn, but like actual episodic memory, like narrative memory that you could tell a story about nothing it's like 51st dates but like twice as fucked up (laughs) exactly basically what they learned from this accidental experiment is that the hippocampus is crucial for laying down memories it's not where those permanent memories are stored it isn't needed for motor memories learning new skills but it's super important if you want to remember your life at all so pretty important in general yes very important got it yeah um pretty interesting Moving forward, also, I found that study, that little blurb that we just talked about, um, a really cool website from the University of Queensland, which has, like, basically a breakdown of each of the parts of the brain and little stories about it. It's a really cool site. So cool. we'll link to that as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I like mm-hmm. that. Moving forward, the last little nugget in our jargon corner, the neocortex. The neocortex. Isn't that the specific area that's, like, super enlarged in humans that's got yes. all the gray matter? Exactly. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, it's also sometimes called the frontal lobe. Um, Got it. I mean, it's in the frontal lobe, but people just refer to it as the frontal lobe, but they're really talking about the neocortex. Um, It's the largest part of the cerebral cortex, which is the sheet of neural tissue that forms the outside surface of the brain. And it it is distinctive in higher mammals for its wrinkly appearance. So that's what we're talking about, the brain Uh, folds. That's where the folds are. Higher mammals. Higher mammals, yeah, I know. Yeah. Great chain of being, busted. (laughs) We already did that. Yeah, higher mammals is in quotes, just like... Oh, okay. More sophisticated functions of the brain is in quotes. I didn't see that you put it in quotes. Is my problem yeah. with that. But yeah. that's good. So it's important. It's wrinkly. Um, no two look alike, which is kind of fun. And um, it's involved in functions like sensory perception, the generation of motor commands, like grab that thing, spatial reasoning, which I don't have, <laughs> <laughs> and language. And over time... The information from certain memories that are temporarily stored in the hippocampus get transferred to the neocortex as general knowledge. So not specific memories of like an event, not event memory, more like the kind of stuff that me and Jared do, like knowing that coffee contains caffeine. For example, um, Jared, how many species of beetle are there? About 350,000 that are described. So that's from your neocortex. Oh shit. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Um, Jared's neocortex is quite literally full of bugs. Oh, oh, indeed it is. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And researchers think that the transfer from the hippocampus to the neocortex happens when we sleep. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So we should do that. Yeah. Sleep on it. Mm. So yeah, that is our jargon corner. How do you feel? Tired. Yeah. (laughs) The brain was just talking about itself quite a bit. Well, there we go. My brain was just telling me to talk about it. What a diva. 
<laughs> the brain named itself. It sure did. So crazy. Which, honestly, it's obviously dyslexic. It was trying to go for Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No hate to any Brian out there, but I, would, I don't like that name. I wouldn't want to be Brian. Really? It's my favorite boy name. Really? Yeah. Why isn't it Jared? Oh. Canceled for a third time. Oh, oh, wait. This man. is a new episode. Okay. First mask canceled. I am so mean today. No, I love... Because <laughs> I, I knew several Brians in my youth who were not bad. Oh, that's good. Yeah. There's a funny Monty Python that movie called The Life of Brian. Life of Brian is good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to the Brians in my life. <laughs> you didn't mess up. Shout out to the Brians in my life. Uh, not great. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so here we go, the deep dive. So our scientists at the University of Kyoto, specifically, they wanted to see if they could erase one memory uh, without affecting the memory system. Uh, oh, did they uh-huh. do this? Did they do this on a slug? No. Did, was it a snail? No. Was it a person? No. What? Hmm. Now we're playing 20 questions. It was a rat. I'm not going to tell you what it was. Okay, keep going. I mean, I will. I will eventually. But um, it was not a person. Okay. Um, Yeah, so they're trying to erase a specific memory, which I think is, like, very 19... Like, this is very dystopian. Yeah, that's insane. This this article made my skin crawl several times. Uh, Get ready. (laughs) Pursuit of science, guys. Double-edged sword. I mean, it's also really interesting. Yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah. So they already know all the stuff that we just covered in the jargon corner because they're geniuses, <laughs> scientists, <laughs> That even needs to be said. Um, but they wanted to break it down. There are several other studies that they cited uh, in this research, and it was news to me, but scientists recently have succeeded in manipulating and erasing memories using drugs, using toxins that target specific neurons, wow. um, by mili- and by manipulating the levels of different neurotransmitters like acetylcholine. So this is, oh. like, there's been a lot of research on this. Wow. Yeah. Including, there's a ton of research about using, like, basically they, LSD was developed in a lab for the purposes of... Wait, this is like literally MK Ultra. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but um, if you know anything about MK Ultra, you already know that all of these methods affect the brain much too broadly. <laughs> yeah. One person blew something up. Yeah. It's bad. Um, so it's too broad. It's too unpredictable for the purposes of these researchers. They're really trying to keep it tight, y'all. Um... Also, some of the methods that were cited damage the brain, um, change the personality, and affect memory in the long term, which is something they really wanted to avoid. They wanted to follow one memory, find the actual, like, circuit, the pathway, like in the connectome. That's insane. Yeah. And see if they could erase that one memory without affecting anything else in the brain. Lofty goal. Lofty goal, indeed. So how'd they do it? With a rat? Have you ever heard of optogenetics? Opto? Opto. O-P. O-P-T-O genetics. I've heard of ontogenetics, but that's completely different. No, yeah. what are optogenetics? It's a biological technique to control the activity of neurons with light. Yeah. This is a men in black shit. It's so is. This is a men in black shit, like no, literally. No, it, it legit, it, that was the first thing that popped into my this mind. This is the red fucking thing. Yeah, the little light flashing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's literally oh very God. similar to that. Um... <laughs> so they control parts of the brain that make the brain do everything. The neurons, they can manipulate them with light. Very men in black. Crazy. So the way that they do that is they go into a brain cell and they find light-sensitive ion channels, pumps, and enzymes. And on the level of the individual cell, light-activated enzymes 
uh, and transcription factors allow precise control of the biochemical signaling pathways. Now, light-activated enzymes are proteins that act as biological catalysts and accelerate chemical reactions. Mm -hmm. So, the things that make the brain go do. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Precisely. Neurotransmitters. And transcription factors are proteins that convert uh, DNA into RNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, they act on those, on the level of individual cells, um, and change the pathways. They were able to use light to change things in the brain, actually by using a new protein that was derived from organisms in the order Anthoathicata. Is that a microbe? No. Is it a coral? They're also called athicate hydroids. Oh, okay, so some so kind of nidarium. It is a nidarium. They discovered a new protein in these guys, and then they. Made it? Yes, I will tell you all about it. I did, cool. a, I did a, a bit of a deep dive on this because I was like, a sea creature? <laughs> Let me learn more. Um, in the actual article that I read, they didn't talk about where they derived this protein. They just told me the name of it, which is supernova green. <laughs> That's fun. Kind of metal. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I read, this article was really dense, so I read a lot of articles about the article to help my dumb brain understand what was going on. That's what you gotta do. Exactly. Um, so by the way, kids, if you're trying to read scientific papers on your own, they're not all a walk in the park. Mm, no. Yeah. Not for us either. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's some tough ones. Whew. Um, but one of the articles I read said that it was derived from anemones and another one said it was derived from jellyfish. Hmm. Both of those are incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> so they look like little anemones in their polyp phase. Um, but they're actually hydrozoans, which are in the cnidarian family, which includes corals and jellies well, and anemones. Them, yes. Oh, my bad. That's the Nidarian phylum. Yeah. Okay. I always say family. You're good. Okay. Yeah. You know, King Philip came over for that good soup. <sighs> oh, I like that one. Is I like that, that one the best? Is that not? It, I thought that was the way everyone learned it. No, I learned it different. How'd you it learn was, it? I don't remember. King Philip came over. See, this is why. For good soup. I like that. I'll remember that now. Good soup. Good soup. So anyway, these little hydroids are tiny. And they're really cute, like the, the ones that they derive these from. They're literally, they look like snail fur. They grow on the shells of other animals. Oh. They're super small when oh. they're in their polyp phase. Love that. Um, and it took me like an hour of internet research to find out all of this. <laughs> but I really wanted to do it because I want y'all to know how often sea creatures show up in scientific studies like this. And I wish they put the information about like where they're driving these things from in the actual study. Would be nice. Because there are all sorts of proteins and compounds that we get from little squishy guys in the ocean who are super important that we never really think about. And so I'm just saying maybe you should thank a marine invertebrate today. Yeah. Just don't buy into the jellyfish can fix your memory. No. No. We don't know <laughs> nearly enough to say anything remotely like that yet. Yeah. And this jellyfish adjacent animal does, definitely doesn't fix it. Uh, but anyway the important thing about the proteins they found in this specific little squishy guy is they fluoresce green oh cool yeah so the protein they derived that's why they call it supernova green it's a really bright fluorescent green and um there was an earlier version of it called killer red (laughs) from a, a related species um which fluoresced red but it killed killed things from the inside oh geez yeah now, I... So that's why they chose to go with the green. Interesting. Killer red. Yeah, I remember, uh, you've seen the documentary Creatures of Light, right? No. Oh, it's a really cool documentary about bioluminescence and biofluorescence I'm and all, all the stuff that you can learn from that. It's not on Netflix anymore, unfortunately. I'm Damn. rather mad about that. 
Um, but one of the things they were talking about is the use of biofluorescent proteins in brain imaging. And yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What I remember learning from that is that they were looking for a red one because those were supposedly the best, but they were also super complex. I guess this is a part of that complexity. Yeah, Killer Red, it does a lot more than Supernova Green, okay, but gotcha. it, they don't know exactly how it does it, and it ends up killing things. Oh, jeez. That's the name. Kind of like dogs and grapes. Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Throw it back. You, um, so what supernova green does is not kill things when it fluoresces, it also produces semi-destructive oxygen ions. That's bad. Yes, but they're only semi-destructive. <laughs> well, that's good. So yeah, when basically when it's exposed to light, it fluoresces and does this thing. So it's easy to see in the brain. And the reason these oxygen ions are good and not bad is because when this occurs inside a brain cell, those little oxygen ions basically just relax the neural pathways. Mm. Slow them down. Interesting. The synapses. But it doesn't damage them. It doesn't alter their structure or anything like that. It just makes them like, ooh. So useful for seeing if you can delete a fucking memory. <laughs> Very useful for deleting a memory. Yeah. So when they're targeted, it relaxes those synapses as a memory is being formed. Relax the synapses is a fun name. Relaxes synapses. Relaxes synapses. So when the supernova green relaxes the synapses, while a memory is being formed, that memory doesn't get formed because those communication pathways, it's like a block on the highway. Oh, it like falls off. Yeah. Jeez. Or less like a block on the highway and more like the highway took a nap. <laughs> <laughs> the highway yeah. glitched and you fell through. Yeah. So more technically, what the supernova green does is it inactivates the proteins that it's fused to. Um, which is coiflin in this case, which is an F-actin side-binding protein. And then that's inactivated, and that leads to the destabilization of the cofilactin structure within the dendritic spine. So if that meant anything to you, let me know. <laughs> um, so at this point, I should probably mention, um, this study was did not involve any humans or primates. It was done on... Rats. Mice. Oh, well, I said rats a bunch of times. Yes, no, not rats. <laughs> mice. Close enough. Yes. Um, and on brain slabs um, of not alive mice. Hmm? First. Well, first they did stuff on, on just mice brains. Oh, okay. And then they did some live studies. Did they, um, like, re-alive the mouse brains to do this? I don't really understand. Like some Frankenstein? The, I'm mostly focused, for the, the purposes of our episode, I'm mostly going to focus on what they did with the live mice. Because Got the it. brain slab stuff, I do not get. That's all right. It was mostly about basically figuring out exactly how the mouse brain works. Hmm. They did a bunch of stuff. This was a many years study. Brain is complicated, man. It sure that. is. Um, so yeah, pour one out for the mice. <laughs> <laughs> they they really are always taking one for the team. They really are. The mice, especially, and the rats. I mean, that really shouldn't be a thing, but yeah. I mean, yeah, we've... Well, the we've, reason they do We've it, talked a lot about that before, yeah. is the sort of rewilding of immunology. Yeah, but, but like the reason they choose mice and rats so often for studies that apply to humans is because they are a lot smarter than people give them credit for. Yeah, that's true. And a lot more social and emotional. Yeah, we got, and a, lot, we got a lot in common with them. They are kind of like tiny little humans, like beta. Beta humans. Yeah. So I'd like to thank the mice for taking one for the team once again. So let's talk about them. Um, so for the control study, they put these mice in little habitats in a lab with a brightly lit section and then an annex section that had no light. Um, and whenever the mice tried to enter the dark part, the dark annex, 
the floor there would shock their little feet. Oh. Yeah. And then they'd be like, ah! And then they wouldn't want to go into the dark room again. Right, because why would you? Exactly. That's how memory works. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then they would move them into a different habitat for, for a day and then bring them back to that dark, bright habitat and... As you would expect, they remembered not to go into the dark area because they didn't want to get shocked. Naturally. Yeah. So they repeated that control a few weeks later and a few months later, and the mice consistently remembered not to go into the dark area, even when it had been months since they had experienced the little shock. It survived pretty long in a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. it would. So yeah. Um, so the hippocampus was doing its job, transferring shit to the neocortex for the little mices, and they didn't want to go to the dark. Also, um, they had to make sure that the memories the mice were making were context-specific, so they also did a test um, where they made another habitat that was different in the size, the texture of the floor, the visual cues, the illumination color, the odor, but it still had a light and a dark section. Um, and they put the mice in there two hours after they did the first test in the control room, and they did not act scared of getting shocked in the dark area. So they knew that this memory was not like a general memory of Anytime you go into the dark, you'll get shocked. It was context-specific. Like to, that room in that yes, specific dark corner. Exactly, which is specific enough for the purposes of their studies, where they want to follow one specific memory, not related to other things, and see if they can erase it. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Um, yay, the mice understand what different rooms are. <laughs> <laughs> They're perfect. Um, so anyway, the whole time that they were doing the control tests, they used a really interesting tiny like camera. Um, they implanted it, like a little microscope, literally right above the little hippocampus on the mice. Wow. Yeah. One that like measured electrical activity? Yeah, so it captures the light of about 700 neurons in that area as Holy they fire. Hell. Yeah, and then that projects it as light onto a computer screen because the microscope is connected to a camera chip that sends a digital version of the image to a computer screen that humans can then look at. God damn. Yeah, so the computer literally displays almost real-time video of the mouse's brain activity. And using that, and specifically focusing it on the hippocampus, the researchers figured out what pathway in the brain would light up when the shock occurred in each mouse. And then they, when they saw the dark room later and remembered the shock, they also saw slightly different pathway lighting up for the memory rather than the experience. Oh. Yeah. So they got a really, really specific picture of what the mouse's brains, the mice's, mice's, <laughs> of what the little brain <laughs> was doing throughout that process, which basically gave them a roadmap for the next phase of the experiment. So they mapped the brain. Um, they know what synapses to target. And now they're going in with the hydroid protein. Super oh, no. green. Okay, let's yeah. see what happens. This part is actually really cool, even though it's creepy. Um, so there's no needle that's small enough to like inject this protein into a single brain cell. So the way they got it into the mouse's bodies is through a virus. Like a wasp. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And also like the COVID vaccine. True. Yeah. I know, right? Interesting. Crazy. Um, so, I mean, they did still have to inject the virus. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, but. But it was so a few more steps involved. What they did is they took fiber optic cables. <laughs> To get the light into specific parts of the brain. Huh. Optic fibers. So, like, okay, so when I'm picturing optic fibers, do you remember, like, have you ever gone to Chuck E. Cheese and gotten, like, the, the prize? It's, like, a little lamp, and then it kind of looks like like hair, 
and it makes little points of light only at the end of the hair. Oh, kinda, yeah. Yeah. So that is rudimentarily what optic fibers are. Wow. But I'm sure theirs were much more high-tech. But yeah, they were like oh, tini- <laughs> tiny little, like, skinnier than a cross-section of a hair fibers that they can put into the mouse's brains without the mice really noticing, and then it transmits light to a specific part of the brain to activate the supernova green protein, which then causes the synapses to relax. This is like sci-fi shit. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> yes. So... It is, um, it's a, it's definitely a little more creepy than the flash device that they use in Men in Black, but yeah. Oh, and also the, the little light trick that they use is called Cali. What? It's called Cali? Cali. Cali. Which stands for Chromophore Assisted Light Inactivation. Hmm. Yeah. I like Cali better. Cali. Cali girls. <laughs> You've been cali girl. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So that's how that works. And so what they did is they took a new batch of mice, put them through this, and they triggered the Cali at various points after the shock um, so they could figure out the timeline of when the synapses were coding the experience of being shocked into the memory that told them not to go into the dark part later. And they found that memory was significantly impaired, significant in terms of science, Mm -hmm. only when Cali was conducted within 20 minutes after the shock. But memory was not impaired when the light, the Cali, was delivered one minute before the shock or an hour after the shock. So the crucial time period for these mice for encoding experience into memory is 20 minutes after the experience. Wow. Mm -hmm. How many different points in time did they try the memory wipe thing? So glad you asked. Many. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll get to that later. So. If you're wondering how could they tell that the memory was impaired? That is what I was wondering. Which is kind of important. They they could tell when they were successful because when they were, when they returned the mice to the same room two hours later, a day later, etc., the mice would just trot right into the dark room again and get shocked again. Oh, right. Yeah. Whereas when it didn't work, they acted like the control mice and where they avoided it, like the plague, because they knew about the shock. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so they totally erased the memory of being shocked in that dark room. It, it worked. Yeah. It actually worked. It actually worked. Now, you might be saying to yourself, what about everything we talked about earlier with sleep being necessary for forming memories? Hmm. Those mice were not taking a nap 20 minutes after. It turns out there's, this is why the title has the word stepwise in it, there are stages to forming a memory. And sleep is when the brain transfers new memories into long-term memories. However... New memories, aka short-term, are created from experience, like the experience of the mice entering a dark room and receiving a shock. And those initial short memories are transferred through the brain via those quick synaptic connections mm-hmm. from this, um, the hippocampus, um, or in the hippocampus. And then they're transferred into the larger brain where they're stored during sleep. Basically, they call it coding it into long-term memory. So, in the case of this experiment, a mouse was injected with the modified supernova protein and had an optic fiber inserted into its brain to stimulate it with light, and after introducing it to the shock chamber with the other control mice, this mouse had its brain stimulated with light right after it was shocked so that the newly learned information would be deleted, and then after sleeping and returning to the room, it didn't demonstrate fear because it had no memory to encode into long-term memory. Wow. Yeah. So basically, they were successful at erasing it within 20 minutes of the event by disrupting this first part of the creation of memory. 
They didn't have to do anything. You just got to break the supply chain. And then there's nothing to to encode. But they didn't want to stop there. They wanted to see if they could use (laughs) the same technology to erase memories later on. Because if you're trying to control the world, you can't get to everyone within 20 minutes of a thing. Um, What they did next is they still use the same optic fibers, still use it in the hippocampus because the hippocampus is still involved during the sleep, just less directly. And it's actually not very well understood. Um, But so they didn't know whether the activity in the hippocampus during memory consolidation actually induces additional LTP, long-term potentiation in the brain. And if it does, they still didn't know where and when that happened. And so the second phase of experience of experiment, they did a lot more testing. They callied the mice every 20 minutes after the mice were returned to their home cage, starting two hours after the shock and continuing for eight hours. Wow. Yeah. So that was the first thing that they did and that did it. <laughs> the memory was erased, but they don't know like which shock was successful. Mm-hmm. They just know that that, that worked. So they can still erase memory using these optic fibers in the hippocampus over two hours after the event occurred, but when exactly? So they narrowed it down by doing more and more testing, like taking out the 20 minute chunks and finding exactly when it would work. And they found it was not effective during the same day. So if it was while the mice were still awake, the day after the shock, like a few hours after, the little shock really had no effect on their memory. Um, It also had no effect if it was more than 24 hours later. It was effective only when it was induced while the mice were sleeping the night like the first sleep cycle after the experience occurred oh yeah so the mice the mice's hippocampuses (laughs) were working the memory into long term during their first sleep after the experience and that aligns with what people theorize happens for humans as well that's why they always say sleep on it Mm -hmm. yeah So they learned that there's two forms of hippocampal LTP, long-term potentiation, that are required for memory formation. Online LTP that takes place during or immediately after the event within those 20 minutes, and what they call offline LTP that takes place during the first sleep after the event. So if you want to remember something, take a nap right after. (laughs) Before someone can zap you with Cali. (laughs) It would seem so. Yeah. Jesus. Also, because the experiment was a bit intense, they shocked them so many times to find this out. They also wanted to rule out the possibility that the mice weren't just forgetting everything because of tissue damage or something unrelated that they weren't tracking. So they repeated the experiment with the same group the next day without the shocks and normal memories were formed. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So no tissue damage. They, their little mouse brains still working totally normally. Lovely. Yeah. So supernova green, not killer red. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So you might think we're done now, but we're not. The researchers were not done. Oh no. They wanted more from the mice. What more could they want? They wanted to see if they could affect the mouse's memories even later in the process, like days or months after. Jesus Christ. After the memory was fully stored in the brain. So to do that, they did take the optic fibers out of the hippocampus and moved them to the anterior cingulate cortex which is part of the neocortex. And it's specifically the area that is activated when you try to recall a distant memory. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, And if you want to visualize it, it's the part that's wrapped around the corpus callosum. So like behind your forehead, like middle of the brain. That's what you don't want severed because that causes problems. Correct. Okay. Correct. It's also connected to the amygdala, which we talked about earlier, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So they moved the octave fibers over there. They repeated the experiment, all of the ones that we've talked about. 
And once they moved these optic fibers into this new area, the Cali had no effect when it was delivered within those 20 minutes. It also didn't have any effect during the following sleep cycle. However, when However. they induced it 20 min um, every 20 minutes for eight hours, the second day after the event, they found that the memory was erased. So they were able to erase it from their longer-term memory. They were, by moving the optic fibers into the area where the long-term memory is stored. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. So this same method worked at three different stages of memory formation and storage. Fucking wow. Wild. Wild. Seems pretty um, easily repeatable to a, to a person, too. Uh-huh. Not necessarily by these guys, but... <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the good news is, 25 days later, it was not effective. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. So it was only within a period of three days. So if you learn something horrible, just, you know... Just hide, hide for, for three days. 25 days. Yeah. <laughs> so there must be more stages that we don't know about. We don't know where they happen in the brain. I am the opposite of an expert on this, but <laughs> what I hypothesize is that after a few days, probably the other parts of the brain get involved as you, like, think on that memory and it, like, comes back to you to haunt you mm. as you're trying to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but it, like, makes a bunch more pathways. And so because there's more pathways to the memory, that's probably why you can't erase it. Oh. That's what I, that's what I think. But I didn't find that anywhere. As another non-expert on the brain, I would say that tracks. Yeah, like, we're complicated and webby and, mm -hmm. yeah, so... Anyway, there you have it. Researchers learned a lot about mouse memories, including how to erase them up to three days after an event occurs. And I, for one, am really happy that this research is confined to mice because I do not like the idea of repeating this experiment in a human. Yeah, I don't like that at all. I do not like it. The authors in several articles talked about how they were really excited about how these findings could be useful for humans for the treatment of PTSD and other mental trauma. I was just thinking about that. Like, it does have a use for people who literally just, like, have trauma response, horrible trauma responses yeah. to a certain memory. But I don't think the... I, I mean, again, I'm not an expert, but I feel like the solution isn't to erase the memory. That seems dangerous. That does seem... Right? Yeah. I, guess, I like, just don't like the idea of... I guess I don't, memories. like, know, know, but... Yeah, I yeah. mean, the brain does do that to itself. Yeah. If you have trauma or, like, anxiety and depression, the brain will erase memories to try to fix itself. Doesn't it, doesn't it not so much erase as it does, like, suppress? Like, Both. stamp down? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know. Maybe you, Yeah. <laughs> Let us know, real brain scientists. Yeah, guys. Yeah. Okay, also, one quote want... that I pull out of one of the articles that I did want to say that I didn't know where to put in my breakdown of this, that kind of explains in more better words, the complex and webby way the brain works with memory is rather than existing as a physical concept inside the brain, memories are actually thought to be recalled by cross-referencing various neural highways, which might explain why certain memories are triggered by certain smells or sounds. Hence the kind of loop-de-loop -loop connectedness. Of exactly. It. So that's why, that's why the connection that I make to say why they couldn't erase the memory after three days. Oh, I see more what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, so yeah. That is my dystopian memory erasure uh, article. Madison, I don't remember how to end the episode. <laughs> we never know how to end the episode, Jared. Oh, thank God. Okay. We always are like, um, and that's it. So we make some weird noises usually. Sometimes we sing a song. I'm not going to sing a song. Me either. I'm too tired to sing a song today. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>